0: Hi everybody, it's Montel Williams here and thanks for tuning into this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we're coming to you from the Gaylord Palms Hotel and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, where uh has been going on for the last few days. The Florida Medical Cannabis Conference has been going on for the last few days. And we've been very fortunate to be able to grab some guests who've been attending and been keen at speakers at the convention. And today we're really, really, really happy to have a guest with us who embodies, you know, I think a patient story. And and you know what I've tried to do here with Let's Be Blunt is to make sure I bring you information that is useful to you and your family to help you navigate this really daunting you know, landscape of cannabis that's coming at you from every direction, especially with the fact that we have now, now 34 states, all of which have a different program of some sort. And, you know, we have, you know, the recent farm bill passing allowing for the sale of CBD. And you can walk into places like 7-Eleven and places around the country and find product and have no idea what to do and whether or not what you're finding might be good for your you or your family, and so what we try to do here at Let's Be Blunt is give you as much information as we possibly can. But every now and then, we are fortunate enough to be blessed to have a guest like today's guest who really got into this cannabis field for a very personal family reason. You know, She's on Let's Be Blunt today because she founded something called Cannamoms back in 2013 after her daughter, Dahlia, sorry, Dahlia, was diagnosed with an aggressive brain cancer at the age of two. And her mission is of helping families find the resources and the information and advocacy to address their needs. Welcome to the show today, Mariah Barnhart.
1: Thank you so much, Montel, for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Why don't you back up and take us through your story? Tell me. Tell me. You know, first off, it must have been just devastating getting a diagnosis that your daughter had brain tumor, brain cancer.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a first-time parent. I think that I've, I've seen the best and the worst of having and raising children. And regardless of the symptoms your child's showing, I think that something like an aggressive form of brain cancer is the absolute last thing any parent would ever expect to hear. Um, my daughter was showing symptoms of um, the flu, honestly, when I took her into the emergency room. At age two. At age two, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a whirlwind. I mean, it's been almost seven years since then. So thinking back to seven years ago, um, it was immediately obvious that my daughter was not likely to survive. So I was told at the very beginning that, um, even the initial surgery to remove just part of the tumor, whatever they could remove or debulk, um, she wasn't likely to make it through that surgery. So my very first question was, what happens if I don't sign off on this? And they said, your treatment options are going to be surgeries, chemotherapy, and radiation. And if you decline any of those that we've decided is in the best interest of your daughter, you'll lose custody of her to the state. We'll keep her here at the hospital, and you'll be removed.
0: So well, this is the first thing they're telling you when you bring your child in who is sick and you don't even know what's going on with her?
1: Right. And I was super grateful. It was actually a female um, neurosurgeon, pediatric neurosurgeon, one of very few um People throughout the world that are qualified to do the kind of surgery she was going to do on my daughter <clears throat> and her being so straightforward with me so early on, I feel like open my eyes quickly. I knew that I wasn't going to have a lot of rights and options in her care. Um, so my advocacy started there. It started with knowing and understanding that um, we go around with this illusion of freedom in the United States. I come from a big military family and immediately something goes wrong. And you realize you really don't have any rights in the care of your own children here. Um, I can't say I was opposed to a lot of the initial treatment options because this is just what's given to you. You know right. nothing about this. I didn't go to school for this. I'm not a doctor. Sure. Um, so I'm trusting these people to hold my hand through all of these decisions and I'm having to sign off on – all of these you know very deadly treatment options she did make it through that first surgery and um came out-
0: no when let's let's back up to talk a little bit about that because again, there are probably other families who are going through this at the exact same time did you you saw of course her MRIs and her cat scans and Did it appear that she had a very large tumor?
1: I was well convinced. I had spoken to, I was very grateful to have a lot of connections at the universities and with researchers and neuroscientists. I was very well convinced immediately that she was not going to live if she wasn't treated. So it was very clear that she was at a point, you know, those flu like symptoms don't most children aren't diagnosed with cancer until they're very far progressed because first they're resilient. Um, Second, a lot of the symptoms mimic other symptoms. So she had trouble walking. They thought it was from growth spurts. She never spoke. They thought it was because I babied her. Um so you know, these other symptoms throughout the years start to all of a sudden Combine right. And you realize you have something really wrong. At one point, they wanted to diagnose her with ADHD and give her psychotropic medication. Mm-hmm. Um, She's two years old. I think oh, that wow. these harsh psychiatric medications being prescribed to children that age, it's common sense to know there's something off with that. But right. never would we have really envisioned that there was just a huge tumor
0: sitting and in the center of her brain. And she had those symptoms from birth?
1: She mm-hmm. did. She never slept. Never. And so people, you know, always when you maybe you have postpartum depression or maybe, you know, you're over exaggerated. I would tell people that this kid never slept. And I think that my complaint of her not sleeping is what led to them wanting to diagnose her with ADHD and treat her with psychiatric medication. Um, But now we know, you know, two and a half years later that this thing had been growing and growing and growing um, is the type of, it was a very aggressive um, type of tumor that grows like a spider in the brain. (sighs) So every part of her brain was affected. So the part of your brain that regulates sleep would have been, you know, a first noticeable symptom. Um, and you know, working with these thousands of families that we have through canamoms over all of these years, you see some of these symptoms are are You know, just like common colds, kids Mm -hmm. are diagnosed with leukemia going in thinking they have a cold to the emergency room. My daughter showed flu-like symptoms. She started vomiting. By the time you start vomiting from a brain tumor, it's because there's so much fluid buildup and so much pressure buildup in the brain that you're really, really bad off. Um, So yeah, I did see her scans. They had a team of um, nine really, really well-credentialed neurologists, neurosurgeons, neuroscientists come in and meet me in the middle of the night, actually the night she was diagnosed. Um, because they didn't expect her to make it through the night. And so they all looked at the scans. They discussed with me the situation and basically said, she is going to die without treatment, but she's very likely to die from the treatment also. And so there's no no win in that situation except for doing – what you have to do, which in my case, my hands were tied. There was nothing I could do but lay with her in a hospital bed, hoping these medical professionals could save her life. Right. And they did. Unfortunately, from that point forward, um, the and torture. Say,
0: so they did a dissection of the tumor, removed right. a large portion of it.
1: Right. And so this initial um you know, it looked like it was DIPG, which would have been terminal. It looked like it would have been, um, you know, several different terminal diagnosis. And what they ended up landing on at St. Jude was an anaplastic pilocytic astrocytoma. So the anaplastic astrocytoma part is what's considered untreatable and aggressive. Okay. Um, so we were going to treat the aggressive part of her um, mixed tumor first. And as it was branched out like a spider in that initial surgery, they could only remove a a minimal amount. Um, It looked like it was coming from Willis's circle in the center of her brain, which can't be touched. So we were going to have to hope to inject her with a bunch of deadly chemicals and that that would kill enough of it that, you know, she could start to progress. And, um, you know, I think we all as Americans have a decent understanding of what chemotherapy is, what mm-hmm. its purpose is. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't know that most of our chemotherapies or many of them come from plants that are toxic. Right. Um, so, you know, science and medicine does come from nature. We just do a lot to, um, isolate and synthesize some of these components that we're, that we're researching in nature and chemotherapy doesn't differentiate between healthy and unhealthy cells, which is why everyone's looking into um, genetic, you know, research. My daughter right now <clears throat> is on a genetic inhibitor. Um, these kinds of Research options are so important because we all know chemotherapy kills. Um, But for a lot of people, it's also the only hope for survival if your disease is that deadly. Um, So with my daughter, we left Tampa, Florida after that surgery and um, slight recovery. She came out of that surgery um, with partial right side paralysis, unable to eat, walk or talk and in a lot of pain, obviously. So we had to make a trip from Tampa, Florida to Memphis, Tennessee to get into a research protocol at St. Jude. And, um, I mean, things just were not good. She was stopping breathing and having difficulty being resuscitated, rushed into emergency surgeries. And while still intubated, after one of those surgeries, they decided that the tumor was continuing to grow. It had already grown to her brainstem just in the three weeks from the initial surgery until that date, and that they wanted to start her on chemotherapy. So at two and a half years old, she woke up having no idea where we were, why we were there um you know you you hear stories of horrific child abuse children being you know locked in in rooms and tortured and abused and It's no different to these children. They have no idea why you're doing this to them. What did they do wrong? What can they do different or better? I mean, that was the most painful thing for me was that there's no way to communicate to this child that they've done nothing to deserve it. She doesn't
0: know what's going on with her own body.
1: Right. And why am I holding her down to let them stick needles in her and do all of these horrific things to her? There's no way for her to know and understand I'm trying to save her life and that these people are actually, you know, trying to save her. So we went through. Um. Several months of some of the most aggressive chemotherapy available on the planet. Um, Very high doses. She experienced every symptom and side effect that was possible other than death.
0: skin burning, all those things.
1: Correct. So, you know, diaper rashes that are really just skin completely being gone. Mm -hmm. Um, Gastrointestinal tract being covered from the tips of your lips all the way down with, um, you know, just...
0: Ulcerations.
1: Just horrific side effects. I mean, this kid and this is also while she's intubated that she right. started getting these sores in her mouth and on her lips so having to pull these um you know tubes up and down it, i just can't imagine anything more horrible than a parent losing their ability to protect their child. That's what our whole goal in life is. You have a child and then the entire rest of your life is to protect them and to make their life worth living. And to watch a kid that age lose their will to live is something I've never witnessed. It's something I never would have imagined was possible because children don't know, you know, as adults, we get depressed and we know that there's, you know, life and death and we contemplate all these things. But to watch a child that age who can't even really communicate or speak, not want to wake up. Right. And not want to be here and lose their will to live was um, heartbreaking. But she was rushed about six months into treatment into another emergency surgery. But because she was having such a difficult time being resuscitated um, and the surgery was emergency and they hadn't planned for you know any types of medications to be on board for her, she came out of a surgery through her skull to insert a second shunt that drains fluid from the brain down to the stomach. Um, she came out of that surgery with no pain medicine. And I will never forget, um, you know, intubated with her arms boarded, couldn't move. um, Just tears. I mean, Ah. this kid was so beat down that she wasn't even fighting. Mm. Just these tears coming out of her eyes with terror like I've never seen. I mean, the amount of terror that this kid had to have been been in. Um, And so I just looked at her and her nurses were sobbing. I mean, nobody was happy. Right. Um, but because the only thing that they had available for pain medicine for that type of situation was something like morphine or other respiratory depressants, right. they couldn't, couldn't risk that. her stopping breathing again. Right. right. Um, and so at that point I looked at her medical team and I said, look, I know you've been annoyed with me trying to discuss this with you. And I know that you're not on board with it. And that's her mother. I'm making the decision to do something illegal because this is so inhumane that nobody Nobody can argue how inhumane this is. And everybody just kind of, it was like a, you know, don't tell us, we won't test for it kind right. of situation. And immediately she slept through the night for the first time her entire wait, so life. Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait, let's back up for a second. So you said, I, I heard about, how did you even know That cannabis was an option.
1: You know, it's hard to pinpoint because the CNN documentaries hadn't come out. There wasn't children on the news, you know, but there were stories of adults who had benefited from this plant. Mm -hmm. So I remember cousins and friends and people I didn't know sending me information via social media, text message. Um, I mean, it's not easy to get a hold of a mother laying in a hospital bed with her daughter, but I And do... you're in
0: Tennessee at St. Jude's, and Tennessee was is not and still is not a legal state. Well,
1: we actually started this research the week Dahlia was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dahlia was diagnosed, and I di- started to do research on diets and supplements. Okay. I called a researcher, a neuroscientist at USF about the ketogenic diet. I actually had her on the ketogenic diet when we arrived at St. Jude, and they said no dietary restrictions for pediatric cancer patients across the board. It's not allowed anywhere mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, and so,
0: (laughs) So, wait, so we'll, so feed them anything that's as carcinogenic as it can possibly be. Well, and and we don't care.
1: The truth is, um, they're going to end up on TPN. So if they don't eat and Dahlia was in this situation, if they get sick enough and they get atrophied enough, which Dahlia was, and they start to lose enough weight, they're going to end up on TPN, which is basically sugar water. Got it. So it's all, I mean, there are no good options for parents right now. I think that this is part of the advocacy is sure. it's not just about cannabis. For me, what cannabis does is represents all of the other issues we're having. If you have a government who's intentionally working against you right. instead of fulfilling your will, cannabis is the perfect example to show people, you know, we, bureaucracy has done us some huge disfavors. Sure, sure. And, um, but, uh, no, I mean, I started her on cannabis oil against the wishes of her medical team in an illegal state, which Florida would have been as well at that time.
0: And you were where you were in Tennessee when you we were,
1: were in Tennessee at okay. this point.
0: And, and where were you getting the cannabis oil?
1: So that's another good story. There was nothing available back then. Um, This is seven years ago. I mean, people didn't know how many milligrams were in a gram. Um, They didn't know what, um, you know, test test results meant, what types to give. Right. There was really so the first person I actually spoke to, I wasn't involved in cannabis like we see it now where, you know, you have. Friends and events and parties. I I called Dr. Raphael Meshulam over in Israel. And so I'm having no idea that he was renowned in the cannabis community and world, um, just knowing that his research was what I was looking at. And he seemed to be the most um, valid source of information at that time. And so he did give me some. He's the only one. I I reached out to several doctors who were considered renowned after that CNN documentary aired and media started picking up these stories. None of these doctors would touch dosing with a 10 yard stick. And still to this day, we know that we're not there scientifically to be able to give people exact dosing advice. Um, But Raphael Mishulam was the first person to tell me, no, you're not crazy. Theoretically, this would work um, to a certain degree for these things and hopefully potentially help kill cancer cells. Um, You know, something we know that cannabis does is enhance cytotoxic uptake. So it's not often discussed. But if you're doing radiation or chemotherapy and taking cannabis in conjunction with that, it's actually helping it work. So it's a neuroprotectant. That's what the United right. States government has it pat or had it patented for. So it's protecting healthy cells while also helping the chemotherapy get into cancerous cells. Yes. And so be- that was where I based my initial willing to do something illegal. Um, in any illegal state without her medical team's consent or even partial agreement, they weren't at, on board, you know, at all. Right. Um, was the amount of suffering that she was in. Mm-hmm. But my initial research was to try to kill this tumor. Right. And so I thought if cannabis doesn't help kill the cancer cells at all, if all it does is make her feel okay, right now that's all I'm looking for. You get so desperate. Sure. Um, and it did. She slept through the night the first time in her entire life. She woke up hungry and thirsty. She never had to get a feeding. Was she tube. she still
0: intubated at that point in time?
1: Um, no. This no. is directly after the surgery. Okay. They um took everything out and off of her. And she was doing pretty well. I mean, once they relieve fluid and pressure from the brain, if that's the issue, there's, it's a pretty fast recovery. What's not a fast recovery is the pain. I mean, they've just sawed through your skull and um, inserted devices and done all of this. So, um, you know, it was just the first time that she seemed like a kid again. I mean, from the day of diagnosis on, that was the first day that she seemed like a toddler at this point, she was three. Now she mm-hmm. had just turned three and she was just happy to be alive. And that was enough for me. I was right. sold at that exact moment. I mean, if all it did was make her happy to be here and to be playing with her dolls and enjoying, you know, the minutes of the day that she did have, right. that would have been enough for me. Um, but what we saw as we moved forward with it, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. I
0: was say, when the type of oil that you gave her, what did you give her? Do you, uh, clearly I'm not trying to, to give you the uh to to lay out a, a, a a schedule so that somebody can come back and say you said you did this I'm gonna go look at your plane ticket and arrest you but I mean where well, you, you clearly went to a state where cannabis was available no
1: I was really fortunate actually I had done a lot a lot of media so from the time that I found out these kinds of injustices were going on forward I started doing media the month my daughter was diagnosed from Skype in a hospital bed mm-hmm. I started reaching out to other parents and trying to get them to tell these stories I started reaching out to politicians and I just made it really public because I thought we can go two ways I could do something illegal really quietly and just be fearful and keep to myself, or I can just make a lot of noise. And it does a couple of things. One, I think that it makes me a target, but in the exact same breath, it makes it a little harder to get people, you know, if, if I ever sat in front of a jury what would they convict me of, you know? And so it became those, right. And so there was a lot of decisions to be made early on that I don't know were made with the most logic because you're not exactly a logical human being at this point when you're watching this kind of suffering and you're trying to save your child's life. Um, But I'm, I'm fortunate that, Things worked out the way they did. A lot of people ended up up sending us products. So handmade, homemade products from out of state, not tested. And they
0: were sending you product that they were claiming was high in CBD, high in THC, high or full spectrum. What were they doing? Right.
1: And so um, some of them were very high CBD and even imported products that were tested. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a lot were THC products that were not tested. And I will say that, um, you know. I would never try my daughter's chemotherapy. So early on when people asked if I would, you know, try her medicine, the answer was no. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if it's tested and we know what's in it and it's from a reputable company, you know, it is what it is. But back then, there was nothing tested. If something was being made in the United States generally, and especially if somebody was willing to send it to you out of the goodness of their heart, right. these are the kind of people making it in their kitchen. Sure, and sure. Um, so I did have some of the worst experiences of my life <laughs> that during that time period, trying a couple of those products was was very scary for me. Sure. Um, and so we ended up settling on a very high CBD product at that point. And CBD is actually what I had read about. Um, enhancing cytotoxic uptake. Correct, correct. And so a lot of people attribute THC to pain relief. <clears throat> but as you know, with nerve pain, sometimes THC can exacerbate that. You're more aware of it. Um, CBD is um, theoretically going to be able to help with nerve damage repair and brain damage repair. Mm-hmm. So I already knew that I wanted CBD in her regimen. I just didn't really know and understand how these products worked and that they made products very, very high in CBD. Mm-hmm. Um
0: and back then, seven years ago... Hemp was illegal. And yeah, hemp was illegal. And they weren't making the best quality high CBD products because they were trying their best to figure out how to extract the CBD. And the, the extraction techniques were a little bit crazy back then.
1: Well, and they um, there were a lot of contaminants in yes. soil. And these are imported products. So we actually got a hold of the first USDA-certified organic plant material the next year and made Dahlia's Botanicals. Mm-hmm. So we made an oil line from... Organic material in the United States because we saw that problem. God. So everything that I've done for the last seven years has been like see a problem say something and do something. Sure. Um, so that was a problem then and you'll see now it's not there are some really my whole TED talk was about don't buy CBD at gas stations. Sure. Um, but uh, you'll, you'll see that a lot of brands are becoming USDA certified organic. Right. Um, a lot of brands are doing things the right way. There's test results available online. So I love to support and promote all of those product lines because these are the people who are willing to spend the money and the time to do it the right way. Right. And I think that people need to be educated that supporting those companies is not only good for whoever you're giving the product to, um, but also good for this industry as a whole. We need some standardization that's maybe only going to come from self-regulation.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Okay, so so the, that first initial round of treatment, you started to see what in your daughter. Stay with us. We'll be right back. the red life i know this is going to become your new favorite podcast and i'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step by step every single week
1: um pain relief uh, was the the biggest and main one, but, you know, we had been on probably we, she had been on four or five anti-emetics, none of which worked for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. The medical world is very honest about the fact that we have no solutions for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Um, so cannabis was the only thing that worked for that. She ended up, atrophy of her legs started to go away. She was more active. She wasn't vomiting nearly as much. She wasn't as sickly, never ended up having to get a feeding tube, which if getting something like a feeding tube and these extra surgeries at this critical point when you're immunosuppressed, that can be deadly in in and of itself. Most of the children we've seen pass away are passing away from organ damage and heart failure and um you know, starvation pretty much, these types of things. Your body's just not well enough to even help itself heal. And so I do attribute cannabis to saving her life in that regard. But like I said, I wasn't really that concerned with whether or not it was going to kill cancer cells at this point. All I knew is that my daughter was suffering. And it's a really disgusting and difficult place to be as a parent to say, if I had to choose between saving my daughter's life or alleviating that suffering today... That's a really hard place to be sure. because my initial goal was just to save her life no matter what. And a few months in, you start seeing the amount of suffering, the torture, this child not understanding why you're doing this to them. And you think if this is her last few months, that's how she's going to remember this lifetime. Right. Um, and so that's a really difficult place to be. But after starting cannabis, I felt suddenly for the first time since she was diagnosed, empowered as a parent. And I feel like even if it didn't help her, That was something I needed and that I went forward with other parents trying to explain to them how disempowered you are when you find out you have no rights in the care of your own child. And when you find out, you know, the side effects of these medications and that a lot of these diseases do not have cures and a lot of these medications have very deadly side effects. We're not where we need to be with medicine in 2020. And as parents, the only saving grace for that is to be empowered. To know that you can do with your child what you need to do to help them. Um, So that's what it did for me. What it did for her was, you know, so unbelievable that um, they ended up letting us you know, leave for the second half of her first year of treatment. We went to Colorado to see if we could get better access to medicine. So
0: let's back up before you did that, because, you know, clearly you take her home. She's at St. Jude's. She's going through what she's going through. And you're in and out. Of... Did you stay at St. Jude's while she was there? You yes. Stayed? Okay. So, you know, maybe the third day after you've given her some of this this miracle oil, What did the doctor say?
1: Well, this is kind of a simultaneous story that we broke off that December. So a month later, we broke off and went to Colorado, which was a risky, you know, venture for me because being away from the hospital that saved her life so many times and was there to resuscitate her immediately when needed. And um, it, it was hard, but watching what cannabis did was miraculous and so this was you know where i was now in her journey and um, while we were in colorado i got an email from her neuro-oncologist at saint jude world-renowned primary neuro-oncologist there at this world's leading children's cancer research hospital she left saint jude to go head up cannabis research and she's still researching it today
0: Uh, and based on what she saw in dahlia
1: right and so her email was um was my driving force for the last six years knowing that doing what we needed to do and sharing that story, because, like I said, you had two routes to go. you could do something in the shadows sure. and hope that that helps better protect your family, or you could do something in the sunlight and know that a lot of other families are going to benefit from mm-hmm. that um so choosing the route we did and doing what needed to be done, um she went off and helped thousands of children mm-hmm. you know she's she's gone to several different states now, huge children's research hospitals. Um,
0: well, clearly, be, before you took off and went to Colorado to to be basically a you know a, what do you call it, a medical refugee, she witnessed some of the changes that correct. took place in your daughter before you did that.
1: Well, but what's interesting is we also started to see larger decreases in the tumor. Okay. And then we took her off treatment um, as scheduled. This was just, you know, per the protocol Off
0: chemotherapy treatments, off
1: chemotherapy trials. and continued to see shrinkage mm-hmm. until we believed that it was dead. Mm-hmm. This is this is a mixed tumor. So I'm speaking on behalf of the more aggressive um, what was considered anaplastic astrocytoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, seven years later, we believe that that is dead. And so um, whether it was that it was given in conjunction with chemotherapy or that it itself was doing what we know in a lab it does – um, both receptor-dependent and non-receptor-dependent ways to kill cancer cells, and it breaks the blood-brain barrier, which a lot of drugs do not, which I, is part of why it's so useful for brain tumors. Cancer. Um, right. And so, I don't know. I've never, I haven't sat down with her since then, in person, and had these discussions. I don't know. We stay in touch, and I love her. I will always, you know, love and appreciate her, one, for helping save my daughter's life, and two, for being so willing to say I learned something new, and now I'm going to go use it. So
0: yes, I mean, clearly your story moved her enough to leave her primary place of work and transition into being an advocate herself for cannabis.
1: Correct. And anytime I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders, I'm trying to, I'm fighting to save my daughter's life. I should not be fighting bad laws and politicians and the drama of the cannabis community. And I need to just focus on saving my daughter's life. And anytime I would get to that point, I'll pull her email back up and say, if you could, could inspire one of the brightest, most brilliant, you know, to be a neuro-oncologist, you have to be really the best of the best. Yes. You're not just smart enough to get into medical school and to pass, um, but you've gone far beyond that. And if I could inspire her just by being, you know, a mom. Helping her daughter. And because the story, I didn't hide that I was using cannabis oil for her. I wanted them to chart it. Even though I knew it was illegal and that they weren't proponents of it, I felt that this information, my my daughter's medical team is, is my team. Right. I'm supposed to be leading that team. But you're so disempowered at the initial time of diagnosis and feeling like you're confused and leaning on them and relying on them that to get that feeling back like this is my team. This is my team that's going to save my daughter's life. And I do what I feel is right in a way that's amicable and palatable. Now, I wish we could do a whole course on how not to lose your child to CPS, Sure. Um, because I do feel like there are a, there's a lot more to be said there. I don't want parents just going out and doing whatever they want and feeling like, well, why did one person not lose their kid and, and another did? It's never fair. But there are ways to do this that I feel are more um, you're – you're more likely – to keep peace with everyone and be friends with your children's medical team and um, not lose your child.
0: Right. Right. And so after the first six months of being a medical refugee in Colorado, what happened?
1: Well, we only stayed there for a very short period of time. I, I got really um, disheartened when I got out there. It wasn't the utopia that people pronounced it to be, it would have been thousands of dollars a month just for tested oil, Um, way too expensive, way too few options available. And it just wasn't what we thought it was going to be. You might as well be in an illegal state because what we were doing in Colorado was not legal either. Um, We couldn't have afforded to even go the legal route, um, not just financially, but, you know, with all, all of the other resources that would have taken. So, We decided, you know, we had already met some families who were willing to kind of do what we were doing and speak out and be honest about it. Um, You know, for some people, we would say, well, just say that you're asking for it. You're not comfortable saying you're using it. Just say that you're asking for it and tell your child's story. So we started to. Kind of get these stories together and tell them in ways that the parents were comfortable with, and connect them with local media. And that was where Canna Moms was born. Was I saw that, um, which is kind of ironic. I know you had Tracy with Canakids Kids on here. She was out on the West Coast starting Canakids Kids at the same time I was on the East Coast starting of Moms, mm-hmm. and we went very different routes with it, but with the same intentions, obviously, sure. to help these children. Um, but with Cana Moms, it was first and foremost about getting these other parents out of the shadows to tell their stories, because we quickly saw, and I would have. Politicians take me behind closed room meetings, you know, Republicans talking about who they liked and didn't like in the advocacy world. And um, I mean, there was a very clear message early on that these children's stories were changing hearts and minds. It scared politicians. Some politicians are decent human beings and it changed their hearts and minds. And other politicians, it scared them because they knew if this got in front of the voters, the voters would vote on our behalf. And that was where you got to see these politicians are intentionally circumventing the will of the people. It was it was an amazing experience for me to see um, that the vested interests that had a hold of these politicians came before human life, came before compassion and came before the will of the voters, which is their only job um, is to fulfill that will. So um, from there, it was that not everyone was going to have the kind of help I had. I just lucked out. I just had an immense amount of outreach and outpouring from communities and you know compassionate people from around the world and the United States and sending products. Not every family was going to have that. And so then it became, how do we provide tangible assistance to these families? Well, you can't do illegal stuff with a legal organization. Um, So you kind of end up having to separate, you know, personal life from professional life. And Canada ended up becoming the first federally approved 501c3 in the United States um, doing this kind of advocacy and, um, helping these families with tangible assistance to help their children use cannabis, which is still federally illegal.
0: Right. You give them a direction, which States to go to where they can go and find product. And those
1: yeah. And you know, it's mostly been throughout the years. I think the families we've helped the most, it's been a very one-on-one experience. Um, I do, try to just um, provide information that's useful to everyone. And that way someone can just take from that and use that as their foundation to build their knowledge upon. Um, But right, I mean, if they need help moving to a legal state, if they're going to, in the state of Florida, you know, helping connect them with tested medicine, um, I don't have any judgment on if somebody's going a legal or illegal route. That's absolutely not my place. Um, But what I will do is whatever that parent decides it's best for that child I'll help them to the best of my ability
0: and so I right right to spend you are this is now your daughter is nine you said correct so seven years later a child who got a prognosis that was you know you're probably not going to make it for the next couple of years still here still on a course of treatment with cannabis
1: Yeah. So she's actually on and off cannabis over the years. We don't have a lot of research that shows, would you just keep someone on cannabis for the rest of their lives? Um, She was off all treatment for a full year, um, just using cannabis, which when I, when I mix hemp and cannabis together, you know, I still just call it cannabis because hemp is low THC cannabis. But so she's been on a multitude of products of different dosing regimens of different um, THC to CBD and vice versa ratios. Um, over the years. But that year that she was off treatment, like I said, we continued to see tumor shrinkage until we thought it was dead. Um, at that point, I um, I think it was a year later, a total of a year later that she was re-diagnosed with new growth of something that looked like a slow-growing, um, almost like an optic pathway glioma along the side of her eye. And so with that, she was started again on both cannabis, you know, higher THC cannabis products and chemotherapy, and that failed. So after nine months of that, it was not working. And I've been able, it's cool to kind of bounce ideas off of people like Tracy and other people with these diagnoses. We have thousands of families that get together in online forums and be able to see what worked and didn't work for different diseases and diagnosis. We have no idea what to do with slow growing tumors. So fast growing tumors, chemotherapy attacks and kills. Slow growing tumors, chemotherapy is generally not very helpful with and cannabis um, I have yet to see a story of somebody cured with cannabis right. from some, from a diagnosis like that. Um, so with that information and bouncing all of that off for half a decade, my daughter now is on and off. She's been off of everything for a few months, and she's on a genetic inhibitor. Um, we're seeing stability and not necessarily curative. Okay. Um, and so I do intend to have a discussion. We're going back to St. Jude in three days, and we're going to have that discussion where um, – you know, the doctors aren't educated on cannabis. So I have to make the decision of what to start her on. Um, if she's on a research trial, are they going to take her off the trial? If I add cannabis into her regimen, um, which happens all too often. Correct. Um, I've seen older children actually smoking cannabis and be taken off of research protocols because they tested positive for THC. So, um, it's just, it's a hard decision to make. She's, um, you know, doing so well, but she still has issues that cannabis could help. She um, came and and spoke at the conference, and then couldn't go to downtown Disney because she's cramping and she has nerve damage that's pretty much permanent unless we find a solution, right? So she can't walk for long distances. She has behavioral issues, and we know that this is. Been amazing for children on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. which she also has tendencies of. She's oppositional defiant disorder and ADHD. These are all things that cannabis can help with. So I'm in a constant um, back and forth between trying to save her life and save her quality of life. Right,
0: right. So what do you what do you think, or what's what's your hope for your organization now?
1: Uh, well, Cannabis Moms was my my first uh, cannabis oriented. Venture, and it was obviously the nonprofit route, and was just doing what I did as a mom, but on a, a larger scale. And I think that we're kind of focusing on the state of Florida as the laws here emerged and trying to create a blueprint for other states, specifically in the South, to do what we did because it wasn't an easy task. And if we can replicate successes without duplicating failures, um, then we'll see more and more states go legal. And obviously, we'd like to see the federal push. Um, But
0: when it comes to the federal push. What do you think the likelihood is of the federal government making some sort of a change in the status quo?
1: I think that it's inevitable, but I also think that people need to really, whether you care about cannabis or not, you have to keep a close eye on this because the vested interests that supersede the will of the people. So you have a few, you know, a little group of people completely overpowering the will of the entire United States. And when you start to see these laws change, you're going to start to see where those vested interests benefit and profit. And so what we've seen is a lot of these industries are changing what they're doing to make hemp and cannabis a part of their profits. So you're seeing people who use cotton and people who use paper and things of this nature um, incorporate, how can I also profit? Instead of this industry taking away from me, how can I also profit and benefit from it? And as we've seen those transitions happen, um, we're going to start to see more and more laws change. And we're going to start to see federal laws change. We've already seen it with the hemp bill. That took us, I mean, half a decade mm-hmm. to push through. So um you know cannabis legislation is certainly on its way, but what you're going to see is a lot of hands in the pot. You're going to see a lot of people hoping to benefit even in the state of Florida where we had to pass a constitutional amendment. I'm from the south. You don't amend your constitution. Um and in fact, I was against the constitutional amendment. I went to the politicians and I said, "Let's do this through legislation." And they promised and promised and promised and then they wouldn't do it. So we had to come out in full force and and passed the amendment. So that's that's what we did. And since that time, there have been dozens of lawsuits that the state of Florida continues to lose at the taxpayer's expense. So every time a lawsuit's filed, pretty much the state loses and then appeals. And all of this is with contract attorneys and it's with the taxpayers' monies, the taxpayers who voted for this law. So right now they're trying to put a 10% cap on THC. It makes no sense. It's arbitrary. It's is arbitrary
0: as the, three, the 0.3% you know, uh, 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 cap on hemp.
1: And I hope someone mm-hmm. sees this podcast in one of those positions of power because what they're forcing us to do is whether you were a proponent of, quote, unquote, recreational cannabis or not, they're forcing us to pass those laws. We're going to pass 21 and over laws only because, um, not only because, there's a lot of social injustice issues that really need to be addressed. But with those aside, the medical community who was medical focused, even they are going to have to come over to the 21 and up legal um, because it's it's too expensive for patients. You've got a closed vertically integrated market. They keep trying to pass legislation to make it more restrictive. So another project we're doing is we're about to launch Florida's first social use uh, consumption clubs. Um, and part of that is just they keep trying to isolate patients. They keep trying to ostracize them. My daughter could not go to public school and use cannabis because public school boards decided they didn't need to implement policies to fulfill the law. That was passed. Um, And so they're trying to keep these patients in their homes and out of sight. And there's no public consumption allowed in Florida. It's a it's a misdemeanor um, for patients. MMTCs aren't allowed to advertise. So we're doing a lot of things to try to kind of shake that up a little bit. And hopefully these consumption lounges will be one of those things where these politicians see you can't write enough laws to keep people from doing what needs to be done. You can go to a bar all day long to socialize and leave drunk. And that's totally acceptable. And one of our politicians in the state of Florida with the 10% THC cap was talking about anything that has the slight ability to make someone, even a small percentage of the population, violent. And I thought, is this lady talking about alcohol? And then I got to the end of her quote, and she's talking about cannabis. Alcohol's literally known for making people violent. And
0: there's been really no association between cannabis and violence at all for over 90 years.
1: Right. And so, okay, here we go. Um, You can go to a bar. You can sit down. And drink something that we know kills you. Um, kills others. Kills others, causes violence, et cetera. And that's totally socially acceptable. And in fact, the most socially accepted psychotropic or psychoactive drug is something I'm deeply addicted to, and no one blinks twice at. If I don't have coffee, I'm a horrible human being. That's an addiction. I mean, anything that somebody can say, I'm gonna, I'm not myself without it. That's an addiction. Yet it's totally socially accepted, and it's deadly. Teenagers die every single year from overdosing on caffeine. caffeine yes. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that's the idea of the consumption lounges. Is number one as an activist coming from a standpoint as a mom who gets to see my daughter be further, you know, isolated from society, and watching these other patients of all ages have those same issues. You want to you want to give them a, a place to be themselves and to be comfortable. But at the same time, it's also a message to, you know, these politicians. You can keep trying. And obviously, it's not coming out of their pockets that they're, they're not paying for the attorneys they're hiring right. for all of these lawsuits. It doesn't bother them at all. For them, they're kind of laughing that they're dragging this out. But what they realize, you know, have to realize is just like they wouldn't pass medical legislation and we waited and we worked with them and they wouldn't pass it. And so they forced us to pass a constitutional amendment. Now that they're not implementing that amendment as it should be implemented and they keep trying to stifle it, um, they're forcing us to pass adult use to make it easier for people to access this without having to sign up for a registry.
0: Well, why do you I mean, you've had conversations with some of these people in, in the closed door sessions, in the back hallways, behind the office. Why? Why? What's what's their reasoning behind giving you, you know, the reason that they give you as to why they're so adamantly against?
1: Well, there's you have all different kinds of people. And in politics, we like to believe that there's a conspiracy going on. Um, But the truth is, there's a lot of conspiracies going on. You have one politician whose brother owns, you know, a hemp company and they want it legal in Florida without being able to import it or just some stupid. You have a guy who owns a cigar factory. You've got um, some of these politicians being paid really big money. Jewel came in, as you know. Because they were doing this all around the country and to the federal government as well as the state governments, and paying huge amounts of money to try to get legislation passed on behalf of the company. Um, and so that was affecting cannabis laws as well. And um, it's not all direct conspiracy. There's not one big conspiracy that's directly. It's a lot of vested interests. All of these politicians have, politicians should not be rich. This isn't how this used to work. <laughs> you worked a job, uh, and then you went to D.C., and then you went home and you worked your job. Politicians don't have jobs anymore. Right. They're politicians. That's their job, and they're rich yeah, from have, it. Something's have, wrong with that. Yeah,
0: we have the wealthiest Congress and Senate that we've So they're issue.
1: gonna do whatever they're getting paid to do, and it's not the taxpayers who, are, who, who they're worried about, and that's a very sad thing that taxpayers have been so um, blind and had their head in the sand for so long that they've been able to get away with this. Uh, you as
0: a mom, you walk in the door and you have a conversation direct right to the face of a politician and ask him, well, why do are you against this? What do they say to you? What's the audacity that they have to say?
1: Well, it depends if it's a politician I know or don't know and um, how deeply connected we are. So if it's a politician I don't know from anywhere, they're going to give me whatever line they've come up with that makes them, you know, look like a decent human being or be able to sleep at night. Um, so some of them will say, I've seen this cause death and destruction and they mean it that they had a brother who was an addict. They're scarred by addiction. And this is just lumped into that whole thing for them. Um, So they're never going to tell you the real reason unless you know them. And so some of them that I do know will say, uh, you know, it gets as immature as this. One of the first realizations I had of my own trauma in dealing with trying to change these laws, I had a bunch of Republican guys shut the door to smoke their cigars and say, yeah, anytime she walks. They were talking about another activist and they said anytime she walks into the room for a Senate hearing we automatically all vote no. Like it was funny to them because they just didn't like her. Um, So a lot of times it just gets down to, they just don't care. It's just, you know, no one's paying attention. This person's no one, you know, it's, it's not always, it's not always one big conspiracy. It's just a lot of vested interests going in different directions. Wow.
0: Wow. So uh, what, what, uh, you know, I'm going to run out of time with you. Um, How about some advice for another family right now? That's going through what you were going through seven years ago.
1: Oh, that's, that's a whole episode of its I know, own. I do a
0: whole other show, right? I
1: actually started a company based on the trauma that I experienced um, in taking care of my daughter because I'm, I feel so strongly that self-care is what's missing. Um, right.
0: People don't take responsibility for their own health care footprint or the health care footprint of their own family.
1: Well, that's the thing is… We're responsible for the health of our children, but we're pouring from an empty cup. And even though it makes sense to say this and we give that advice to other people all the time, we aren't. Being accountable, a lot of us are, myself included. I, when I ended up going and getting a full health workup, having six surgeries in a year just to get caught up on my own body, I had stuff wrong with me everywhere. I had major, I'd been living off of coffee. I mean, laying in a hospital bed for six years, pretty much. Um, And so I think that it was very eye opening to me to start seeing some of these other parents have some of the same issues, getting back surgeries and getting, um, you know, being super sickly and, autoimmune diseases started popping up and um, we know that stress causes disease and we know that we're not taking care of ourselves as Americans, Um, particularly as moms. I think that we um, are taking care of our children and then our spouses and then our elderly parents. And, you know, it's the idea that we can't love without being entirely selfless. And that's, that's just unfair. Not only is it unfair, it's unrealistic. It's not sustainable. So if you want to live your full life and be useful to other people, Take care of yourself. And I can say it all day long. I know I never took that advice and it takes you getting to a point where you're able to receive that information. Um, But that's the advice I would give time and time again is take care of yourself because you are going to be the leader of that team that saves your child's life. You are going to save your child's life. Like theoretically, if you're being empowered to do what you need to do to help your child, you're that child's superhero. So take care of yourself. Sure.
0: uh, If somebody wanted to get a hold of you or or to get more information about what you're doing, where would, where would they go? What website?
1: I have, it's kind of embarrassing. Somebody just convinced me to do this, but I have so many projects going on all over the country and especially here in Florida. I just created a MariahBarnhart.com site and that way you can just click on contact me and it comes directly to me.
0: Okay. So reach out to MariahBarnhart.com. You got it. And they can get a hold of you. I can't say thank you enough, Mariah, for being here today and sharing your story, honestly.
1: Without a platform to share it on, it would, it would be lost, so thank you.
0: Right. No, no, thank you, and and hopefully, you know, maybe we we'll reach out again. I, I probably didn't cover even fifty percent of what we needed to do. I'm a about. talker. No, no, come on, we can talk and talk and talk. So I'd love to have you back at another time.
1: Awesome. Is that okay? I would absolutely love to do that, and
0: right, I'm sure that my listeners would want the same thing. So, like, if you've been tuning in today too, let's be blunt with Montel. Make sure you click on and subscribe to that little button right there in the right hand corner, right, right there. You subscribe, and if you subscribe. You know, um, and you are willing to leave a review, leave a review, and that will qualify you for an unbelievable giveaway that we have going on right now, a little competition contest where you could probably qualify to receive a magic butter machine yourself to be able to make some products for you and your family at home.
1: That was the, and- the machine I first used to ever make my daughter medicine, just so that...
0: Well, so there you go. That's a $200 value that we're giving away. All you got to do is click and subscribe and leave a review, and that'll qualify you. And then we'll take a look at it, and then somebody's going to get one in the next couple of weeks. So thank you so much. And again, our guest today has been Mariah Barnhart. Um, An amazing story. Are you about to write a book?
1: Um, I have so many on the way. Do <laughs> you? <laughs> on the way. <laughs> One day. <laughs>
0: One day. Well, hopefully, you know, a good publisher will reach out to you and and, and get this solidified because I think people really uh, would 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 just glom at the opportunity to read the whole story and understand what you've been through. Because there's so many other families out here that are going through similar situations that could use the hope.
1: Yes. Absolutely. Thank so, you so uh, much.
0: Thank you so much for being here. Tune in to the next. Let's be blown onto the